Welcome, friends, to this two-part interview episode of Leadosophy. You're here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. I am interviewing Lieutenant Jessica Schaefer, Coast Guard Commanding Officer of Coast Guard Station Cape Disappointment in Owaka, Washington. This interview kind of talks a lot about Jess's leadership experiences and followership experiences. Jess is a big fan of followership. She likes talking about followership and believes a lot of times that we don't place enough emphasis on followership and we place too much emphasis on leadership. So very insightful in this first part interview. And then the second part of the interview, uh, the next one will be, she'll talk about her experiences in Hurricane Maria, the response to Hurricane Maria. So it's really exciting. Jess's views and opinions are hers only. They're not representative of the U.S. Coast Guard or the U.S. Coast Guard's views on leadership or, or anything Jess is talking about. Jess is just talking very very casually about leadership in general, trying to deepen all of our understanding of what it means to her and, and anyone else who, who might be listening. So hope you enjoy these two episodes coming up. Here we go. Are you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution, you are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of leadosophy, Tim Wood. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Leadosophy. Remember, you're here with an open mind because that's the rule and not the exception. I am honored here to interview my wife, Lieutenant Jessica Schaefer of the U.S. Coast Guard. She is the commanding officer of Coast Guard Station Cape Disappointment in Ilwaco, Washington, which is in the southwest corner of Washington State, where the Columbia River meets the mighty Pacific Ocean. Pacific Ocean. Jessica is, I like saying this, and this will come up later in, in conversation, but she is the first female commanding officer of Coast Guard Station, Coast Guard Station Cape Disappointment. Jessica also has a undergraduate degree in anthropology. Yes. From Purdue University. I do. Where you also rode crew. I did. You're on the crew team. And she also has a master's degree in, in emergency management. So I'm sure those skills come in handy. And we'll talk about some of those things because I want to I talk about some of your experiences during hurricanes because I think they're relevant. Maybe not so much relevant on the West Coast, but I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from your experiences in leadership, management, followership, and just honestly being prepared for emergencies and not being prepared for emergencies. Which is always more the case. Not being prepared? <laughs> Normally. Well, not for us, but for the normal if, if everybody was prepared, there would probably not be an emergency. That's a good point. You tell me that a lot. Yes. Jessica, Jess, I'm going to call you Jess, if mm -hmm. that's okay. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Jess, uh, uh, Jess is going to probably be running the engine room every once in a while, you know, when, when I'm not around. So I got to get her up to speed on, on some of the, the, the technicalities of, of the podcast pro pro uh, processing. I'm going to guest host. I, I think you're going to be... You're only the only host at some point for Leadosophy. Wow, interesting. I did figure out the mic in the uh, headphone situation today, so you did. We're running. This is actually my first time using a, the second mic here with this setup, so I'm excited mm -hmm. to do that. So this is obviously Jess. This is a leadership philosophy show, Leadosophy, the fusion of leadership and philosophy. 
we're going to talk, we're going to definitely talk about some leadership, but kind of talk about maybe just some life things or whatever kind of comes up. Uh, I got a kind of a rough format I want to follow, just kind of keep us on a little bit of time schedule. You actually have a search and rescue case going on as we speak. I do. I do, actually. So uh, it might get a little chopped up from time to time if I have to break and uh, answer the phone. So pre-apologize for that and we'll deal with it as it rolls because that is actually our life, used to be your life. That's been my life for 18 years. I don't think there's any day that's gone by in the last 18 years where I haven't had to deal with 30 things at once, which again, emergency management, that's what you're doing. Semper paratus, always ready. Coast Guard's motto. That is Coast Guard's motto. So let's talk about briefly, we have a significant weather event here in on we the do. Washington coast, probably the Oregon coast too. Mm-hmm. All the way up. So what that means on the West coast uh, for the listeners is heavy seas, boiling, frothing seas in the ocean. <laughs> A lot of wind, right? Heavy winds. Absolutely. You can see it outside. Uh, I know you can't see outside our window, but our big window here, thats uh, it's, it looks like it's bright out, but it's actually just an overcast gray. Um, definitely blowing past gale, almost a storm. And uh, do you hear the, the person in trouble alarms going off for the locals too? So we're not the only ones running around doing stuff today. So this is a live show. We got a lot going on here in, <laughs> on, on the Long Beach Peninsula. Search, active search and rescue. Yes. Interesting fact about the peninsula, the reason there's a horn going off is because every the fire department here is all volunteer. So the alarm has to go off, volunteers respond, um, and that's how that's how that gets done. So I actually would assume that they're responding to the same thing. And we live in a very rural place. It's very rural, so common. A lot of fire departments are pretty much all volunteer in a lot of small rural areas. Yep, absolutely. Not always the case, but a lot of times that is the case. So your role right now... We, you're, you are currently functioning not only as a commanding officer, which you are always the commanding officer of Coast Guard Station Cape mm-hmm. Disappointment, but right now you're the command duty officer, so you're overseeing any search and rescue operations right now. Can you elaborate on what that means, being the command duty officer? Yes, actually. So, yeah, absolutely. I didn't mean to say actually. But um, so essentially, um, command duty officer is a conduit for anybody in myself, like a position like mine, um, where we allow um, an intermediary to go between us and the direct uh, crews. And we do that for a multitude of reasons. Um, To avoid groupthink is probably one of the biggest ones that I do it for. Um, There's a dirty rumor out there that we do it so we don't always have to answer the phone. I never understood that rumor because I always end up having to answer the phone. Um, But it's not not so well-defined that it, uh, you know, you could... Google it and you're going to get the same definition because it applies differently to every unit because every unit has just a slightly different, unique mission. You know, you always talk about the law of unique experiences. Um, it's my favorite. It's it my, I love when you say law of unique experiences. <laughs> oh, what is it? Law of, what is it? Unique. That's right. Law of unique experiences. Yes. I'm just saying I love when you say that. Yes. So yeah. that law of unique experiences doesn't just apply to people. It applies to businesses, corporations, and in our example, any Coast Guard station unit or mission. Um, because every unit is so dynamic and the people assigned, the mission assigned, the boats assigned, the weather here is not the weather in South Florida, right. sadly sometimes, um, especially on a run this morning. But yes. uh, we also don't have 100 plus degree heat to deal with too. So that's why every unit has to basically find the best way to manage 
their crews per their given situation. So I'm really impressed sometimes with our lack of defined lanes in situations such as like a command duty officer. So for me, what our job is, is to provide support and oversight to the crews. I don't need to be there, but I've talked to them four or five times today already. We're discussing things such as the weather, the wind. Um, one of our big responsibilities out here is uh, controlling the passage of vessels from the river, the Columbia River, into the ocean. We have a responsibility in determining who who we think or who we suggest can safely do that. So with this storm that's coming in, if this were in another part of the country, they would say it's a hurricane. But out here, it's just... Winter storm. Just a Saturday right. um, on the peninsula. But it is a pretty sizable storm. So the first thing this morning, you know, you're coordinating with the stations north of me, the stations south of me. Um, and we're I'm talking to their commanding officers and their officers in charge, and we're trying to determine... You know what's going to be our best posture overnight and we're articulating that up our our chain of command so that everybody's aware of what we can and can't do if somebody gets in trouble so there's a large command and control absolutely feature. so that's happening externally to the station between me and all of my fellow co's and oic's um, co being commanding officer yep. officers in charge yes yeah. one's enlisted one's commissioned right. um and then yes that is the downfall of being in the military for a really long time pardon my acronyms yeah, like a lot of acronyms. A lot of acronyms. In the military in general. Yeah, absolutely. So, Every profession has their acronyms. Yep, so I uh, spent the morning kind of coordinating with, uh, you know, the gentleman up north and the gentleman down south um, about our different response postures because if somebody gets in trouble in the ocean, we have to be able to get out to them. And when we have storms like this, sometimes that can be challenging or not doable, even for us. So we would rely on helos or fixed-wing planes. Helicopters. Or, yep, yeah. helicopters, fixed-wing planes. We would start going up and coordinating outside of our unit. So right now with the search and rescue case, essentially they're, you know, they tell me what the report is. And really my job is just to be like, to think of things they might not have thought of. Because and, they're in the heat of the moment yes. kind of, right? And you're yep. like a step away. Because anytime you have any sort of incident like this and you get hyper-focused or vigilant or you start thinking about one thing, you can lose sight of others. And so my checklist sitting here with you is a bit less convoluted. I'm not dealing with the wind, the rain. I'm not starting a boat. I'm not, you know, putting on my clothes. I'm not doing all these tactical things. I'm, I'm literally just going through this, like, list of, you know, do we have what we call our top five? Do we know the problem? Do we know the position of the person, the problem, nature of distress, the, per the number of people involved? Do we know what we're going out there to do? Do we know what our risks may or may not be? Has the crew discussed those? And do we go or no go? So right now we just had that discussion and they're at a go. And um, I I think at this point it's it's, it's a low probability case. I think um, it is. it was a report of a person in the water and there's a lot of debris, a lot of buoys. There's a lot of stuff in the water at this point. And based on the location and the type and the nature of distress we are we're relative, and it's very close to the station, so it should be an out and back. So based upon your knowledge of the area, mm -hmm. your experience, years and years of experience in search and rescue, you start to formulate kind of some hypotheses of what, whether it could be potentially a misreport, yes. right? Things so like it, that. it goes to our conversation where, you know, you're like, I don't like assumptions, but there's so many assumptions that have to go into 
search and rescue. But the thing is, is you can't just... Well, you have to act on some assumptions. You have to act on the assumptions. Like right now, we are acting on the assumption that there is a person in the water and it's they're in distress. But the hypothesis is there's an extremely high probability that this is actually nothing. But if you acted on that and then it actually was a person in Oh, we would never act on nothing. Right. We would always, we always go, we always err on the side of um, distress because the worst thing in the world, I think for any of us or our crews would be to exactly what you said, um, not guess wrong, but be wrong about that. Right. So it's easier to be wrong when you're acting than it is to be wrong when you're sitting on the couch watching TV or something of that nature. So the crews are, they have a bias for action. Um, and it's almost like you treat everything as if it is a potential person in the water until you prove yourself wrong. Right. So right now we're going through that process where we're going to treat it exactly like it is and exactly like the report is until proven wrong. So a lot of moving parts. Tons, tons. And obviously you, you report to a unit above you and you're relaying information. You, sometimes you're getting information from the unit above you. Sometimes you're relaying information to the unit above you and there's just a bunch of different layers. Absolutely. Um, However, I mean, not necessarily my job at this point because we have a person at the station that's designated to fill that role. And so really, I'm, I'm, it's like a glorified coaching position. I'm just ensuring that that information is being passed and that it's the correct information and that we challenge information that we receive that may not seem or appear right. Um, so we're actually capitalizing on various layers of experience. You know, from the most inexperienced person that's standing their first radio communications watch to, I would say, in this case, myself or one of my um, surfmen that's going out right now. I know you've talked about being a surfman before on the program. One of the surfmen that's going on, out right now is... Actually, I have never. You haven't? I have not. I thought you had. Nope, never. Oh, you should probably do that someday. One day. Yeah, boat drivers. Boat drivers in really bad weather like this. Extreme conditions. Yes. Or can function up into extreme conditions. Yes, those are the people that can drive the boats in the most extreme conditions that the Coast Guard allows, actually, right. for small boat operators. Um, so one of those gentlemen that's going out that just happens to be on duty today um, is, I think he's in, either in his 19th or coming up on his 20th year. So a lot of experience himself. Absolutely. I have a lot of experience. And then ironically, the, the partner person that's the other boat surfman um, is one of our newer surfmen. Uh, but also, again, they were just out. They did training this morning in this weather because that's what we do. We train in this weather. They were out all morning. So, again, taking all of that in, you, you're taking in all these external things. You're, you're receiving information from 9 million different places, which is why I'm able to sit down with you and have a conversation with you and trust that that process is, is playing out the way it should. You have to trust the pro process. Absolutely which is obviously goes right into leadership. There's a certain, I mean, this is a large amount. Of, I mean, you're, you're trusting people to go out and perform a very dangerous mission and you have no real direct role in it. It's just kind of like, take the wheel, like you got it. But my role in their responsibility is leading up until this point. It was the training process. It was the last two and a half years I spent with them running these types of missions, getting to know your people, knowing their capabilities, knowing what they can and can't do. You know, I was just recently in the surf with one of the surfmen and, again, competent boat driver. Um, same with, the, uh, you know, the 19, 20-year-old veteran, competent boat driver. So what they do when they're on scene, I have to trust the process that even got them there 
to know that they're going to be doing the right thing when they're out there. But once they're there, I listen to them. Um, they might tell me something and I will question it or I will push back just to ask for clarification. But once they're on scene, they have that firsthand knowledge. They're invaluable. And so that relationship building up to that point where I'm getting information relayed to me from them on what they can and can't do. So let's move into, we used to have a podcast. Oh, we did. We did. Do you remember what it was called? Yeah, Semantics of Leadership. Semantics of Leadership. What, do you miss doing that? I do. I We had a fun time, actually. And I was laughing because I keep expecting our, because at the time we had a dog named Wallace. And every time we recorded the podcast, do you remember you would go to his water dish? And start drinking water, lapping yes. up water? Very loudly. Very so, aggressively. Yes, very loudly. Um, so I keep waiting for one of our, uh, you know, Great Danes to come strolling over here and interrupt this podcast on cue. So do you think our leadership ideas, opinions, thoughts, knowledge of leadership has changed? I'm not saying gotten better, but evolved maybe over the last five years? Because that was about five, almost six years ago now that we yeah. did that. So, Absolutely. So I think... I think at the time, um, I had just come out of essentially a tactical leadership role as a BOSA mate first class, you know, running as a surfman um, for, you know, 11 years at small boat stations. And then I moved into a more of a administrative oversight role as a newly commissioned officer. Um, I still was given a lot of leadership responsibility because I'd had previous leadership experience. So whereas a normally a new commissioned officer wouldn't have had the amount of personnel working for me that I did. I, I still had a significant number of people under under my purview, but my exposure and my risk um, was nowhere near what it had been. And so I look back on that period of time and I felt very free to talk about the decisions I had made because it was kind of like they were done, you know? And so I've been hesitant, as you know, I've got a book full of because I always wanted to pick that back up. You still write, jot down ideas for podcast episodes. Based on my daily interactions, I always do. I always jot down ideas on my um, on what I'm going to do or, or what happened that day that I think that would make a good podcast. But I'm very hesitant and reluctant to talk about any of them because I'm still in the throes of it. And sometimes I think that period of reflection, which I know that you've been in, I think you have a better gauge on whether or not you did or didn't do the right thing at the right time. When you can step back away from the situation, it's just like, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot about crisis management. You know, when people are in theater, when they're actually in the response phase, it's very hard to move to a reflective phase. You can do it in little snippets, but until you can remove yourself entirely from that theater, you sometimes can't process what happened. And that's actually, you know, critical incident stress management, um, post-traumatic stress disorder debrief, like not disorder, but that's what we're doing, you know, with people after incidents is we're trying to bring them out of that theater and have them take that moment to reflect and then discuss anything that they want to discuss. So I agree with you. I, I think what you're talking about, about reflection, you know, I'm Leadosophy is big, a big fan of, of reflection and self-reflection. The last five years since, or six years now, almost since, since I've been retired, I have been able to armchair quarterback my, my time as a leader and a follower. And, you know, that, that time that we did the semantics of leadership was a very 
I was still also active duty. I was in the final year of my Coast Guard career before I retired. And I think at that point, I was kind of in reflection mode or starting to move into more reflection mode. You're smiling. Why are you smiling? Because I just heard the ear flap of a Great Dane and it just made me laugh. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I've had plenty of time to reflect on, on my leadership. And, and we have a Great Dane moving into the frame here. He's probably hungry. He eats like 10 times a day. That is Plato. This is Plato. Plato named after the philosopher Plato. Not Plato with the D, it's Plato with the T. So yeah, semantics leadership was a lot of fun for me. We got to talk, we, we went very uh, narrow in our subjects. We did. And we were able to go deep for 20 or 30 minutes on whatever subject we talked about. So I think at some time it'd be neat to go back and kind of rehash some of those things. So kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of leadership. You obviously had a lot of diverse experiences before you came in the Coast Guard between college and- I did. Uh, things like that, and then obviously studying anthropology and, and things like that. How did that shape you or shape you? How does that shape you now as a leader, Those looking back on those experiences before you even came into the Coast Guard? So I recently had an opportunity to uh, sit for another podcast, and I, I jokingly say I, I hope they never use the comment content, nor should they, because I, I wasn't really prepared to to answer questions like this because I hadn't, again, I'm in the middle of it all. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to wrap your brain around how things affected you and and how those things pre Coast Guard have translated into your what you do now. But it, um, at the same time, though, we do these things with our personnel when they come to the station. We do check ins with command, right? So they have to. I'm laughing at the dog because he's now snuggled up underneath the table. He wants to be a part of the podcast. He, does. he is Plato, so he is our little resident philosopher. Um, but I, I look back on those experiences, and um, you know, things like my parents were divorced when I was seven, I think, very early age. Um, they were both in relationships when I was very young, still, I think, 10, 11. So, our family, when I was 10 or 11, and this was before not saying divorce is cool, I'm just saying this was before. It was a common, more common thing to have divorce in the family. So I look back at that and I think of how strategic that actually was for me. Um, and I, I know that, you know, divorce is hard on families, it's hard on kids. So I'm not trying to lessen that impact on a family or kids, but the ways that it, it, it develops you and helps you as an adult, um, conflict resolution, um, honestly, being able to navigate four families. Uh, you got to experience, I think, one one Christmas, the way I kind of the way I would have before, because all my grandparents unfortunately now have, have deceased, and um, I think yeah, you got one of the very last ones. And I mean, our Christmas celebrations where you had to go to four different households or five different places to see all the families, the step families. And every place was a dynamic. Every completely place different is completely yes, right. right? You felt the same way. I, you know, I told you about this. Um, there's that movie Four Christmases, and I don't find it that funny because I'm like, that's real. Um, every place was was just culturally and just a little micro environment within its own. My dad's family is very different than my mom's family. Um, my mom's family is very different from my stepfather's family. My stepmother's family is very different. They're Italian. They're, you know, it, it's so, it was so different. But I grew up in an environment where I had to learn to be a social chameleon. I had to learn how to adapt to my 
you know, read the room. I had to learn how to read the room at a very young age. Um, it was very acceptable to cuss, say, for example, at my mother's family's house, not disrespectfully, right? Not the kids couldn't do it, but the adults could do it in front of the kids. Whereas at my father's side of the family, it was kind of guarded, right? So that very early ability to read the room and read the, the situation was then enhanced by learning cultural anthropology and learning ethnographic study of other cultures and how to appreciate and keep an open mind no matter where you are and really just pick up on little cues. Um, oh, you know, everybody's in this perfect line here. It's a, you know, so everybody here lines up perfectly. Whereas in another part of the country or another part of the world that I'd been to, it was you just all stand there and yell. You know, so in Italy, you wanted a coffee at a few places. You just stood in the line and you like yelled for your coffee. You like fought your way to the front for the coffee. But you go to another part of the world or country or even in the United States as we've transferred all over the country and people line up in perfect lines in certain places. Some outfits are acceptable in other places. Some aren't. Um, my favorite is recycling. I always, every time we move, I'm like, okay, what's the recycling deal here? You know, and um, but I think that that early childhood exposure to just differences, subtle as they may be, um, really translates into me now moving around the country. Every year, a third of our crew transfers out, and new people transition in. At your unit, your current unit. Yes, right at now. our unit, at, at all my units, even the ones that you had before. So every year you have to find a new balance with your people because they shift and they transition. And so when I think about um, that informal education I got as a kid, coupled with kind of the formal education, then coupled with just 18 years of you know, practical experience, I think that's what helps me in situations such as Puerto Rico. I'd never been to Puerto Rico before. Um, yet I went there for Hurricane Maria, the response, and I had to land boots on the ground and I had to go around a country where I, I'm not a, a Spanish speaker at all because that was a good choice in high school. I, I learned German instead. Guten Tag. Uh, guten Tag. Guten Tag. Yeah. Although I think I probably mispronounced it. As you well. took eight years of German? I did. I took eight years of German. You'd think I'd be better. Um, if, you, if you don't use it. You lose it for sure. So. It's know, like algebra. Yes. Oh, painful. Um, so yeah, so I land in Puerto Rico, and I end up in all these different meetings. Um, you know, I'm, I'm rubbing elbows with National Guard. I'm going to Customs and Border Patrol. I'm, I'm essentially going uh, the local, the mayor offices, the local emergency management centers, and each one of those places has a different dynamic. And it, it isn't so apparent to me then, but when I reflect back on it, do you want me to move him? No, he's fine. This is our this is our 150 pound Great Dane trying to get comfortable underneath the kitchen table. <laughs> Sorry for the distractive noises. Yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when you're quarantined. You're not quarantined, but you're just locked down in COVID. So you're just you know this is our studio anyways or my yes. studio. Yes. Anyways, uh, and when it's rainy and terrible outside and we can't take him out for proper exercise. Right. And he doesn't like the rain. We haven't figured that one out yet. Um, but yeah, so when I think about it, that experience of dealing with all those different entities, um, essentially been preparing for that since I was 10 years old. Right. 
you uh, a lot of people don't know about uh, what a lot of people don't know about you is you worked in London. I did. Can you talk about that experience, life experience? Yes. So I always laugh a little bit because the first 22 years of my life were about as random as the last 18 years have been. And um, I had this great opportunity with Purdue University to do a semester abroad, um, very common with schools. Ours was particularly to do an internship. And because I was an anthropology student, they had a challenge. I was the first anthropology student they had tried to do it with, and they didn't really know where to place me. They didn't know what would be a good job for me. And I had an art history, I was minoring in art history. I actually tried to minor in actually art. I don't know if you even know that, but the labs were too long and um, I wanted to play a sport, so it didn't really work out. So I was like, oh, art history. So they coupled those together and then they m magically found this place called Guildhall Art Gallery. It's owned by the Royal Family and it's in the one square mile of the proper city of London. And underneath it, um, if you actually do a Google satellite search, which I'm sure you could probably superimpose on this, you'll see in the courtyard out front that there is a um, line, a half moon, and there was actually a Roman amphitheater um, that that was built on top of. So perfect, right? You got an anthropologist, archeologist wannabe with a little bit, just a touch of knowledge on art and art history, working in an art gallery for a summer and it was quite possibly one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I can't wait to take you there. Yeah. I promise I will. No, you talk about it often. You talk about your just general experiences in Absolutely. London and living mm -hmm. in Europe. And you always talk fondly about it because you also traveled extensively. I did. I did. So, I mean, we had, you know, chalk it up. My mother was, she was encouraging. She was brave. She, uh, she let my sister and I explore the world. Um, and it was your sister lived in austria yes right? my sister lived in austria um and so we met actually in austria she wasn't living there at the time but we went over there because she'd been to london multiple times so when we went to meet her um we met in austria afterwards and then we traveled around the country and then i worked in mexico on a project for purdue university um, all of these things leading to me graduating because i wrecked up all these doing all these field projects for Purdue, I graduate. I racked up all these extra credits. And I always say I accidentally graduated in four years because I wasn't ready to leave college at all. I was having a good time, I promise. Um, but yeah, so just that traveling again and seeing everything. And you know, I love that's probably been the one downfall for me in the, in the Coast Guard is I haven't been able to travel because my positions have not allowed me the opportunity to travel the way I would like to, um, just because I've been in positions of of more responsibility than than most have to be and so but i love it i love going overseas i love we what was our last trip was iceland and then this year we were supposed to go to peru um canceled due to covid sad face what's your favorite favorite part about traveling in foreign countries exactly what i said seeing what, I mean, you land there and it's just looking at the landscape, looking around you, taking it in, you know, the type of how buildings are built. That's actually why I like traveling on the few times I've gotten to travel with my stepfather because he's a construction management person. And he points out things that I would have never thought like, oh, they, look, they use limestone here. And you're like, oh, why do they use limestone here? Is it quarried here? Is it, you know, you just get into that. Um, food, what is, what's the good food? Um, obviously some some drinks are pretty good too. Kind of my demise, my last night in Ireland, Iceland. 
Excellent. Um, but again, just that same thing, seeing how different cultures move. I remember one of the things I remember distinctly about my time in London is when it rained. It was like a symphony of umbrellas on the street when it rained because everybody I worked in like a business district and everybody knew how to walk um, which with umbrellas. Yes. And how to tilt them and cant them in a way that it didn't dump the rain on the other person. And I remember walking through London all the time and seeing that. And it was like a dance of umbrellas. You know, who would go high? Who would go low? And I, I haven't been back to London in a really long time, so I don't know if it's still the same thing. But I just found that fascinating how people move in different areas. And then what I always love about it, too, is it always makes me appreciate coming home. That's a, that's a great point. Nothing like coming home. Nothing like coming home. And I'm sure no matter where you're from, that's kind of what you think. Absolutely. You know, you felt the same way. I took you out of the country for the first time ever. We went to Ireland. Did you have that same? Yeah, Ireland, Ireland was my first, first trip out of, out of, you know, I'd been in the Caribbean throughout there, Latin America, stuff like that, but I'd never been to Europe. That was my first time to Europe. And yeah, it's definitely, you, you know, you, it's different. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I was uh, making the, I'm not sure how many people, I don't know if that's Europe, Europe, but British Isles for sure. Right. Okay. So after your time in Europe, traveling around Europe, working in London, we've talked about your college experiences, everything that's kind of shaped you before the Coast Guard. Talk about your almost nine, you're coming up on 19 years in the Coast Guard. Talk about your Coast Guard experience, the things that have shaped you, not only just in followership and leadership, but to combine. Can you talk about those experiences? So as with any other position, well, as most other positions, you come in entry level. Uh, it didn't matter so much that I had, you know, traveled to Europe and I'd done all these things before I was, you know, done things people haven't done their whole lives before they were 22. Um, I came into the Coast Guard at 22, having a four-year traditional college degree, um, just finished up, you know, being a collegiate athlete. And I... I think it starts off your, again, entry level, and you know what that means. Yes, scrubbing toilets. Scrubbing toilets. Doing all the mundane tasks that nobody wants to do. Cleaning bilges. Bilges um, on a boat. On a boat, yep. Some cleaning people the, may not know what a bilge is. Yep, cleaning the bilge of a boat. It just sounds terrible, so you can just say, I think what your favorite was needle gunning when you started out. Yes, sitting in the anchor pocket of a 210-foot Coast Guard cutter, chipping the, chipping the rust and paint off of the anchor with a which, needle gun yes yes so you know there's a lot of exciting jobs um but i think when you have good leadership and good mentorship and good supervisors they're willing to tell you the significance of those mundane jobs because yeah they're mundane i mean people in my unit are doing it as we speak you know and it just they all have a purpose um, I will say that there's very few of those mundane jobs in the service that have no purpose. Uh, there are some, but not all. Mostly, I find paperwork has less purpose than most of those mundane jobs. Some of it necessary, some of it unnecessary. Yes. Um, but yeah, so you start off and, you know, to me, that's where you kind of earn your, you just start off in a different dynamic, but you're always kind of working towards the same goal. You're always trying to build you know, trust and confidence in your team around you. And whether that's being the person who's willing to, you know, clean the gross toilet when nobody else wants to, or if it's 
the person that's willing to step down out of their position and do something that they are normally not required to do. You're always kind of working towards that, you know, ultimate goal of having that trust to where you can have those open conversations and open dialogues, especially about risk or things of that nature that come up later. But really early on in your career, and, and you know this just as well as I do, it's really about building technical competence. That's the one of the biggest tools. It's my favorite. Yeah, it's one of the biggest tools that you can do um, as a leader is, or in our in my experience, was be technically competent in your job. And to do that, you had to be a good follower. Um, you had to submit yourself to the people above you and trust that their experience lead all the things i'm asking people to do now below me i was you had to be willing to do do you place more emphasis emphasis on followership than leadership we've had this discussion before and you seem to value the followership stuff more than the leadership stuff sometimes absolutely because everyone is a follower but not everyone is a leader yet we place no focus or emphasis on that um, and if you can't follow, how can you lead? Do you think that's across industries, whether business, I, I military, do. you think? I do, absolutely. I do. So I, I think across um, industry and leadership positions, you know, it's, it's like technical competence. Those people, it's apprenticeships. It's, you know, it runs through. I know for a very long time, I, as you know, I dated a, a welder, and he had to come up through an apprenticeship program. And it was very much the same as what I was doing, building my technical competence. Um, the hard part and the challenging parts um, are, you know, those few times where you start to exceed the technical competence of the people above you. I think that's about the hardest part. And then well, you have can to you unpack that a little bit more? What do you mean? So there comes a certain point where maybe you learn faster than a peer, or you start to outgrow your position and it's hard because especially in the military you can't always leave that position right it's a fixed um, time and the people that you work for may have never had your position, so they may not understand the technical competence or they may not be proficient in that and i think that's a big growth point that i've had over my entire career is um managing expectations both above me and below me and again i think you do that very well when you really focus a, a little bit on followership. What does it take to make my boss look good? What does it take to be a good follower, right? And so once you know what those expectations are, let me break it down to you like this. I always tell the guys, you, the best crewmen make the best coxswains. Um, you can be a good crewman and never be a coxswain, and you can be a coxswain and never have been a good crewman. And this is the hierarchy, it's people working the deck versus people driving the boat. But when you are that crew member that's really proficient and then you start driving the boat, you start driving the boat in the back of your mind, you're thinking about what your crew member is doing on the deck. And so you're anticipating a little bit how your actions are going to affect the person on the deck. And so when you start thinking like that, you start maneuvering and driving and doing things to try to alleviate the challenges and difficulties for the people below you. And then one of the things I think makes leaders successful is when the people below them are successful. And so that to me is that definition of success. When you provide an environment, you did a, you did a, one of your um, podcasts recently on knowledge, tools, and resources. Knowledge, tools, and resources, correct. So that's where I feel like I'm at. So as a follower, 
my job was to receive in the early part of my career, my job was to absorb those knowledge tools and resources that were being provided to me or not being provided to me sometimes. Sometimes you learn a lot from the things you don't have. Correct. Um, and you learn a lot from seeing other people's mistakes. That's still knowledge. Knowledge of what not to do or knowledge about some, you know watching another person do something incorrectly. Um, sometimes that has a greater impact than watching somebody do something correctly. So you start off and it's your job to absorb all that and build your inventory for how you're going to provide that for somebody in the future. And that's why I think followership is so important. That's a uh, pro. You get a you get a little owl. That's a very profound thoughts. Even leadosophy, I believe. So, I I've been meaning to talk to you on air about followership, and I finally pinned you down. And you gave a great answer. You even brought up some leadosophy podcasts from the past. I did. I, I listened. Yeah. I listened. Well, I feel like you stole you know my my command philosophy I had when I've been at the unit, and that is my job. You know, whereas before my job was to be. We call it, we're coasties, but the equivalent would be a sailor or a soldier. You know, my job before uh, the last, you know, five, six, seven years, and even a little bit when I was an enlisted person, um, was to provide the knowledge, tools, and resources for people to be successful. Prior to that, it was for me to explore those, to find out which knowledge, tools, and resources I needed to be good, technical expert, to be good at my job. My job was to learn and take it all in as much as I possibly could, whenever I could, from wherever I could, so that I could put it in my, you know, my little brain bank and then start pulling from that file when I was put in a position where I had to then act. And so, you know, I had some strategic people, influential people that I that I worked with that taught me how to do that really well. Some of their methods I didn't necessarily agree with sometimes, but many different ways to get to different points. Yes, correct. So I'm going to get a little leadosophy okay. on on the on the show here because you said something that stuck with me because I can remember being in these positions in the Coast Guard where you are in a certain position, you have the authority and power in this position, and people above you may not have the technical competence to understand fully what that position entails, and then the people underneath you what they need. So. I find that interesting from, because I was reading this morning, we, I was actually reading a passage out of the Leader's Handbook by uh, Bernard Bass, and he was talking about the difference between autocratic leadership, more far authoritarian on one side of the spectrum, versus completely democratic on the other side of the spectrum, where you're basically listening to you know the majority, right? You're taking, maybe all, you can also talk about like laissez-faire leadership, right? Where you're just kind of sitting back, let other people kind of maybe decide. I think there, as it from a leadership perspective, if you have people that are following you and you know they are more technically competent, they have more information, you, you almost have to be more democratic. And if you try to be the other way, it's like doubly worse. I mean, you may, if you are more technically competent as a leader and you are autocratic or more of a dictator, authoritarian, you may put off people, right? They may not like that style. But if you couple that with you don't have the knowledge and the information, would you agree that makes it even worse or no, could make it worse? Yes. Did I, am I saying that? No, you're saying it right. Absolutely. I mean, I know what you're talking about because we discussed it while I was cooking lunch earlier. Um, I 100% agree with what you're saying um, to an extent as well, because back to that followership piece, 
another important part about followership is knowing that there are at least in my profession in our in your former field in my current field there are not that many absolutes there are no universal truths in the world of leadership correct so there's no universe there you go see i'm saying but that that's also a paradox because i'm stating that's a universal truth yes right so and we love paradoxes okay we love paradoxes in our house um so what i was trying to say or i i lost my train of thought a little bit that all got me but there's a million different ways to accomplish a task agree and one of the things you can do as a follower that's very important is not always try to do the same thing the same way and be open to those million different ways and if you work for an autocratic person who's like nope today we're going to do it this way then sometimes you just have to say roger um it's one of the hardest things in our profession boat driving there's a million different ways to drive a boat we have theories and each person has their own theory on what's best there's some good practices that are proven to be better best practices best Best practices right right? but that doesn't necessarily mean if you don't follow them that they're going to be the worst so learning to you know trust and follow because that person based on their knowledge and experience might see they may still have all those same tools i know there's a thousand different ways to do something a technical skill but based on my knowledge and experience, I see something that the other person doesn't. So today, I just need you to do it this way. We'll talk about it later. So that's like, sometimes that autocratic happens because you need you need something done instantly, and you don't have the time to do the democratic process. Right. But it is... That's a good example. It is important to us to take advantage of the times where you do have a democratic process, where you do have the opportunity to slow the world down, think about it, and then employ it. And those are, I, I think those are most important and most key when it affects a greater group, when, when the effect is going to be a little bit more broad in some areas. And then if it's a singular effect, it's a little bit more easy to be autocratic. But even then, when I'm making decisions at, the, at my level, I don't have a luxury all of the time, but one of the biggest things I've learned is rarely does any decision need to be made immediately outside of an emergency emergency or immediate safety issues whatever yeah immediate safety issues you have to make a decision um you know we have we had to make a decision just now when we were on this podcast go or no go all right well we made that decision to go and then on the back side of that yeah but even that was a mini democratic process because you're taking input from the people we talked mm-hmm. about you trusted Absolutely. their experience so. yeah i mean that was a but it was a very brief but the ultimate authority allied with you yes right and that that's back to that risk you know we're managing risk all the time in our worlds i like that managing risk we are we're managing it because you can't control it all the time Correct. i hate when people think they they can control risk we can manage it we can tr- do our best to try to mitigate it but risk is always present and you'll never know all risk yeah you will not ever know all risk um you know it's no different than setting up this podcast you know you'll hear a dog rustling around or walking around you know that's that's a risk to your podcast is what's the severity of that that's a little annoying but right so we're always kind of managing that and sometimes based on risk you have to make immediate decisions but when that risk is low or low impact low Mm. impact low speed you know just to generalize it a democratic process can be good because it's good to exercise it the more you exercise it the more quickly you can do it 
So we can have a democratic process. I mean, you saw me have one in the span of a minute and 30 seconds on whether or not our boat crews were going to launch in 40 knots of wind and 20 foot seas. But we have practiced that process repeatedly daily, probably ad nauseum. Yeah, you're just not figuring this out overnight. It's, yes, it's, this yes. is not the first time we've done it, right? right. Um, but even if it is, at least one person in that group has done it before. And so, again, democratic process. Um, but it, ultimately, there is a person in the you know ch- the search and rescue chain of command chain of command flow that makes that decision that you know we have done everything we can and we have to shut this machine off or turn it on or you know there is one person that takes all that in and is responsible just based on law for right. making that decision but even that person's taking it all in they're just the person that has to sign it sure so um, as far as you know autonomous decisions in my day. That was my next uh, subject was autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but I was thinking about if you are going to grow leaders, you have to, what you're saying, you have to give them some sort of autonomy and decision-making, maybe low impact, maybe medium impact, maybe give them a little room to make the wrong decision, right? You, how else can you grow leaders? Well, and that's how you said, we always have this, we always have this discussion, right? Because people will say, well, they can't have a leadership experience or a position because they have no experience. Another paradox. Right? But how are you supposed to get experience if you don't have leadership? And that, to me, is where we miss an opportunity to focus on followership. Hmm. Because you can gain... You can can get I get it out? Yeah, you can get it out. Yes. Um, because you can gain, not necessarily... It's always different. I, You know, I tell... When I have conversations with the guys at work about this... I came from the second in command position at my last unit to in command at this unit. And before that, and before that, and before that. And you always get to this point, and it kind of goes back to my technical competence thing, where you think you know it all, and you think you know more than the person above you. You may. But, and then you take those, you put on those shoes, or you put it, you get to sit in that seat, and you're like, oh, I don't know anything. It's a different world. Yes. You're like, oh, I don't know anything. Um, and it was a hard transition, too, from second-in-command to in-command, not necessarily because of that. It's just because as a second-in-command, you're doing everything. In-command, you're definitely almost full delegation mode. Right. It's delegation and follow-up, delegation and follow-up, delegation and follow-up. The responsibilities flipped. Yes. And so, you know, just thinking of those transitions, what did I observe about the people I just worked for as a follow, you know, following that person in my last two, I had two commanding officers in my last unit. And I really reflected on what I saw them do. Um, I remember I was walking up and I had to make a decision and a little shout out to Mark Ketchum um, because I genuinely was like, what would Ketchum do? <laughs> and, um, WWKD. And, yeah. WWKD. And I knew instantly I recalled watching him, and I remember he had to make a similar decision. And when he was making that decision, I didn't agree or disagree with it. I was sitting back, I was watching it, and I was just really happy it wasn't my responsibility to make that decision. I was the facilitator of the process. I was the personnel officer. I was the facilitator of the process at that point, and he had to make the decision. And I remember thinking, I don't know if this is a good or bad decision. I remember not having an opinion on it, and then also recognizing as a follower was my job to have an opinion on it. If he asked me my opinion, then I would have one. But at that point in time, 
It wasn't my job to have an opinion on it. It was my job to make sure the process was followed. So I was a process manager at that point. And that was something that I learned, that role clarity as a follower that I think helped me because I was able to step back. I was able to actually fully observe him and his state and making his decisions. And then later when I was in the same very similar, rarely are two situations very similar, but this was very similar, it was like a light bulb. I was walking from the boat docks to the admin office. Which shouldn't be confused with sameness. Similarity and, and Similarity identical. and sameness. Is you, right. I don't think that I've had the same situation in any shape, way, or form, right. which is why I always get all bent about leadership books. Um, not all leadership books, but you know, I have a hard time reading leadership books because leadership, to me, is so dynamic and it's so dependent on so many variables that are never constant and never the same that I have a hard time sitting down and reading somebody else's leadership story. I like like Bass's leadership handbook. It's not necessarily talking about certain situations with certain people. It's more theoretical in studies. Correct, which yep. is why I'm such a I am such an avid supporter of leadosophy is because leadership isn't just how did you get through this situation successfully? Because that same situation in my experience just never happens twice. It will never happen again. It will never look the same. Same people, same place, same I mean, even even two different scenarios, people's emotional states are different. I mean, there's so many different factors that go into it, sure. right? And what do I always mess up? You never in the same river twice? You never step in the same river twice. That is Heraclitus. <laughs> Heraclitus. But it's, and that's what, uh, you know, I I know we argue, but we've argued a little bit about uh, leadosophy and, you know, how you... Spirited debates. Spirited debates. Yeah, you're right. Spirited debates um, about how you've taken, you took a direction that was very philosophical and me as a day in and day out practitioner practitioner i'm like man it's just not that complicated sometimes sometimes it's very straightforward it's very you just have to get in there and you just you know it's it's not you can't philosophize about it correct and sometimes i don't always know the words that you use which is is another funny thing but what i do love about it is when i have these thoughts and when i don't understand what even is going on in my brain what I've learned about you from you over the last few years and what I value about your philosophy tree, you know, background is you will just come up with, you never step in the same river twice. And I'm like, that's what I meant. Heraclitus. <laughs> Heraclitus. But you have a way of, um, I'll be having a complex thought that's complex. I think that's Heraclitus. I'll double check. You'll double check? I'm pretty sure. You're going to have to do a fact check and debunk. Oh, you could do a debunk like our favorite show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so you always have a way of wording what I can't. I have too much stuff going on in my brain, and you can always... Verbalize it. Verbalize it, or ration out why something... My favorite, actually, with you is that we don't actually talk about Coast Guard and work that much. Very rarely. Yes, which is kind of funny, because I think everybody assumes we do. Um, but I'll have a people problem, or... A process problem and the one thing I've really appreciated about your approach to this and your development of leadosophy is you have figured out a way when I have those problems and in, in my you know I don't think I have a small brain but it feels like it sometimes um, I can't right now I can't what am I doing right now you could probably figure it out um, I'm trying to verbalize or understand 
why I'm having a hard time. You're trying to take a bunch of fragments and make it whole. Yes. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Um, Everything's fragmented. And then you have this way, based on all of the research and reading and, and your pursuit of knowledge and your pursuit of how we obtain knowledge, of taking all of that and making it make sense to me. So we complement our skills. We do. Yes, you are very definitely, uh, you know, when I started this journey of leadosophy, Jess keeps me grounded. She reminds me that I have not been a practitioner of leadership for some time, and that's a good thing because I can forget that. I think sometimes when I, when I deliberately try to think like a practitioner, it's easy for me to go back and start drawing on my experiences I had. But I have to deliberately try to do that now because, you know, from my undergrad in philosophy and then going on to, to graduate school almost immediately after in leadership studies, I've been immersed in this academic field, and that's how my brain works, whether it's writing, you know, trying to articulate something, and I have to try to find the balance between, like, do let's just keep it real here. Let's just try to keep it real. Not, let's bring it down from the abstract world. Yeah, and we've had that discussion multiple times. Um, when you were going to FAU, Florida Atlantic University, you getting Owls your- up. It is an alley, alley place here. The burrowing owl is the mascot of FAU. Owls up. Owls up. Owls up. Um, that's their thing, right? Okay. Owls up, yep. So when you we were going to school, though, we talked about that because I, I attended a couple classes with you one day. It was kind of fun for me to go back to campus and um, met your professors. And, and you had a few professors that are, were just academics, Um Solely academics. Solely academics. And I will tell you, one of the most influential professors I had in college was Michael Watson. I think it's Michael O. Watson. But uh, Professor Watson, he has since passed. I remember being in his, I think I've told you this story before. I remember I was my senior year, I was getting ready to graduate. Again, didn't know what I was going to do. I go into his office, which was exactly what you would think and anthropologist's office was very similar to actually the philosopher's offices, just a almost closet sized room, just head, just books, right. books, books everywhere. And then the, in the back was this very disheveled, crazy desk. And I sat down and I had had him since my freshman year. He picked me out of a, a conference room of four or a, whatever that's called a room of 400 students auditorium type intro classroom. 101 to anthropology picked me out by name and called me out for uh this is kind of sleepy it's an early class you 10, probably weren't texting 10 30 was early. i wasn't texting yeah. this was pre-cell phone 10 30 was early back then um that was my freshman year i was not playing a sport that year but anyway i was a little sleepy so i had taken several classes with him and um he was definitely a, he was a cultural anthropologist, and he told me to not go on to get my master's and not go on to get a doctor because I really did enjoy um, that field of study. I really had a great time. I was very I loved archaeology. I loved being out in the field. I loved doing all of that stuff. And he was the one that said, he said, "Go live life and then come back, and you'll appreciate your education so much more." And so he was actually the one that convinced me not to go on to get my graduate degree and then go get my, you know, continue a life in academia. He said, well, first off, he said very practically, there's 
you're going to struggle for finances and it's going right. to be a rough go. Um, so he was very practical on that, but he was also, he had lived such a good life and a full life and he really valued his experiences external to his academics and he brought them in. And, and so that's what he told me to do. So in a way he really pushed me out to, to go do all these crazy things. And I do, you know, I imagine someday you and I are going to be professors at Purdue university, you know, just put a little plug in now Yeah. Uh, of what? Who knows? Who knows? I have no idea what I'm going to contribute to. Leadosophy. I'll teach leadosophy. There you go. But I mean, I just, I think that's something that I would like to do eventually. I always wanted to do it. Either that or be a postal worker. That's good stuff. Yeah. So, but I, I don't even remember how we got down that train, but I just remember having that conversation and thinking how important it was to go out and have life. Yeah. Well, I think we were talking about kind of my academic experiences and kind of doing it. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about how. Because I did 20 years in the Coast Guard yes. and then went back to school. So. Yeah, but we were talking about how, you know, one of my frustrations with your initial leadosophy was that it was highly academic, and it just, to me, is more practical. And so that was the tension between us. But what I didn't realize until maybe this point is maybe that's the whole point. Right. Leadership, fusing leadership and philosophy. We're doing it in our house every day. We are. I think even right now, like this is why... I prefer this forum over reading a leadership book. And not that I don't, obviously I've read a few leadership books, but this general conversation for me, this is deepening my understanding of leadership. Again, I'm not trying to find any truths per se. I'm just trying to understand, asking questions, listening, trying to understand someone else's experiences in the world of leadership, not judging them, just learning from your experiences. And then by that, I can deepen my own understanding. I can maybe jettison something that I thought was more likely to be true maybe than something else or, you know, does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I have read, I have some people, I've read some great books. Um, yes, obviously there's some great leadership yeah, books. Out I mean, there. Uh, honestly, like Danger Close, that was one of my favorites. Um, I'm just like you, I'm not a big fan of, of cookie cutter leadership books that say, Hey, this works in all situations. Yes. Or here's the five things that you can do that will make your life easier. the greatest leader ever. Like these 10, 10 like yeah, tips not, will make you the best. I'm not I a have fan a hard of those. Time with those. Yeah. those are the ones I was talking about. The books sure. like your Bass Leadership Handbook or the one that you had the other day that was able to articulate why you should lead differently in different situations. And you could, again, articulate this better than I. Same book. Bass Same Handbook. Book. Yeah, I was actually talking about when so, people are more author- authoritarian yes. versus democratic and it was based and on information. So it was yeah it explain was that. so it was, it's it's based on it's a leadership followership dynamic right and a a leader may tend to be more democratic the less information he or she has so the more information that a leader thinks that her, her his or her followers have they'll tend to be more democratic if the leader believes that they have the bulk of the information they may tend to be more authoritative Mm-hmm. right more closed-minded it's an information thing it's all knowledge and information and it's all like on a flywheel and it should be on a flywheel where it's more give and take that's correct thanks for watching and listening to another episode of leadosophy if you liked what you heard today hit that subscribe button and check out leadosophy.com and learn more about tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership we'll see you next time